Welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary Podcast. We're continuing our new series titled The Abundant Community. Throughout this series, we're exploring justice through generosity. Today, Pastor Jason Coker helps us see a different approach to salvation and a more thorough understanding of the kingdom of God that doesn't start one day when we die, but rather today. The text for this teaching is found in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, entitled, The Fruit of Repentance. Uh, The Abundant Community, so this is our teaching series for this month. We're talking about what it means to be a part of a community that gives generously to each other, not just to the church. For me, anytime we're talking about giving, I always cringe a little bit because churches have a tendency to talk about money in two ways, either number one, You should feel guilty because you aren't giving enough, or you should feel guilty because you aren't giving 10%. Uh, Or on the other hand, if you give, then God is going to like wildly bless you and checks are going to start showing up mysteriously in the mail. Uh, And we don't really do either of those things here because newsflash, neither of those is true. You don't have to feel guilty about what you aren't able to give. And God is not going to magically send you money if you write checks to our church. But there is a real blessing in being a part of a community of generosity. And so this month, what we're talking about is what it means to be a part of an abundant community. That's how I tend to think of what it means to be a part of the church. So that's what we're doing today. Today, we're going to look at Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, uh, the fruit of repentance. I'm going to ask that you just pray with me and for me as we get started. Father, we thank you so much for today and for this opportunity to gather around as a community, to gather around uh, your words and to gather around the songs that we sing to turn our hearts and our minds towards you. And as we gather around the needs in our community and in our neighborhood and just open our arms and ask you to lead us into the ways that we might make a difference We're really grateful, God, that you have created a a little community here in downtown Oceanside of people who are willing to roll up their sleeves and contribute their time and their effort and their talent so that you can do good work in downtown Oceanside. We're thankful and grateful that you've called us to it. We ask that you teach us how to hear you and how to follow after the things that you're doing. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but uh, I, when I was younger, was a really terrible employee. I've never been a very good employee. I've never been the kind of person who is very good at being told what to do. I much prefer to tell people what to do. Uh, I have that sort of flaw. And when I was 18, 19, I was really bad. Um, and the, the trouble with... Me as an employee when I was 17, 18, 19, and 20 is that I worked for a business that was owned by my father. Now, maybe some of you have worked in a business where one of the employees was like the boss's son, uh, and so you know just how insufferable that can be to, to work somewhere where there's somebody on the payroll who just knows sort of smugly that nothing's ever going to happen to him no matter what he does. That was me. I was that person. It was a retail business. And I worked there for about four or five years uh, and knew that just nothing could 
could happen to me. No matter what I did, I wasn't going to get fired. It didn't, didn't matter like who I smarted off to. It didn't matter like what mistakes I made. Nothing bad was going to happen to me. And I took full advantage of that privilege. Uh, I remember one of the things that we used to do, and I say we because I would lead the other employees into these little like, you know, mini revolts against authority. We had a manager at that business who was not my father, um, but I used to really enjoy torturing this manager by just doing all kinds of stupid and unproductive things. One of my favorite things to do was across the street from our business, this is just good, clean fun, right? Across the street from our business, there was a print shop. It was like, you know, storefront with glass and all that. And for years and years, it was a print shop. We even had some of our printing done. This was before everybody had their own print shop on their PC in their house, right? And so there's a print shop across the street. And at one point they moved and the building was vacant for several weeks while they were doing renovations and fixing it up for whoever the next tenant would be. And I just thought it was so funny to call the local like Pizza Hut and order pizzas to be delivered to the vacant business across the street. Now, the great thing about this, now stick with me, the great thing about this was that we could sit in the office, call the Pizza Hut, and order like four pepperoni pizzas to be delivered, and then we could watch as the delivery guy rolled up and walked up to the front. You know, and it was clearly a vacant business. There's like nothing inside. There's like ladders some construction equipment, and the poor pizza delivery guy, you know, he'd walk up to the glass, and he would knock on the door, you know, knock on it here, and then he'd look through, and he'd knock some more, and he'd look through, and of course, nobody would come to the door because it was vacant, and so we would laugh. We would sit across the street at our desks, and we would just laugh at that poor sucker, and then he would leave. Now, this is the best part. He would leave, and I would call again and say, hey, we just ordered four pizzas, and the guy came, but we're working in the back, making a bunch of noise, and so we didn't hear him at first. Could you please send him back? Tell him to really knock loud this time. And that poor guy would come back, and he would, like, pound on the door, and we would just, we would just laugh. Now, I was getting paid to do that. <laughs> Somebody was paying me by the hour to essentially amuse myself on another person's dime. In this case, of course, it was my own father's dime, so I wasn't very concerned about that. The thing is, when you are in a position of privilege, when you have power, and you know that nothing bad can really happen to you, it tends to produce in you the worst possible behavior. So one of my favorite passages, Luke chapter 3, uh, we're going to start it off here right at the beginning of the chapter. This is where uh, in Luke, the gospel of Luke, the gospel writer here is introducing us to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was that prophetic figure who came before Christ essentially to announce the coming of the Messiah. We're going to pick it up here in Luke chapter 3, verses 1. It says, in the 15th year of the reign of the emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee... And his brother Philip, the ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the God came to, or the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now that's just establishing the time frame when this gospel was written uh, to the Christians who were contemporary with this writing. Those names would have meant something to them. 
So it establishes an important time frame for the people who were first hearing this gospel message. So we'll go on from there. He went into all the region. This is John the Baptist. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That should sound familiar because this is the passage we read earlier today. It's from Isaiah chapter 40. And then he goes on with a quote of Isaiah chapter 40. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. I want to stop there just for a moment. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, my trouble with this particular passage is that Luke uses the word salvation. And the trouble with the word salvation is that we are a Protestant church, and maybe you've noticed this, but Protestant Christians are obsessed with the notion of salvation. We've spent the better part of the last five to six hundred years arguing with our Catholic cousins and brothers and sisters about what it means to be saved. And entire libraries of books and entire, like, you know, video uh, segments on YouTube have been created to excoriate other Christians about what salvation is and what salvation is not. And the result of that is that when we hear the word salvation, we tend to think of one thing and one thing only, and that is what happens to you after you die. And and oftentimes, that's exactly how Christianity is sold. Like, we go to people, and and, and maybe you, I, I certainly experienced this, maybe you experienced this somewhere, where somebody taught you how to get people saved. And part of getting people saved is maybe asking Tricky little questions like, hey, you know, you got hit by a car tomorrow and died. Do you know where you would go? I mean, mean, there are entire like evangelistic methods created around this. Do you know where you're going to go after you die? Let's talk about what the alternatives are if you don't go to heaven. And so when we're reading gospel passages like this and John talks about salvation or Luke talks about salvation in God or in John's words, or, or in other passages like uh, where Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, what we tend to hear is heaven. We tend to hear of this ideal, abstract state of bliss and happiness and perfect well-being where we will be after we pass away. And don't get me wrong, I believe that's true, and I am counting on that being true, But what I want to suggest to you today is that that's not really an accurate understanding of salvation. It's not about what happens to you after you die. This started, by the way, because the church primarily in the Middle Ages used fear about what happens to you after you die to raise money. Now, I'm perfectly aware that we are trying to raise money this month. So the reason I bring this up is because the church has historically been remarkably good at raising money. 
And the reason we've been really good at raising money as a tradition is because we've been all too willing to use your fears in order to get you to give. In fact, we're Protestants primarily, we like to say sort of in shorthand, because Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door back in the early 16th century to protest the abuses of the Catholic Church, and that is all true. And part of what Martin Luther was protesting was this very thing, the church's tendency to use people's fear about what happens to them after they die to raise money. In fact, one of the really effective fundraisers for the church in the 15th and 16th century, late 15th, early 16th century, uh, was Johannes Tetzel. And Johannes Tetzel was, it's said, we don't know that this is totally true. We're taking Martin Luther's word for it, by the way, right? Johannes Tetzel's sort of famous saying was he would go out into all these little provinces in Europe and he would go to the parishes and he would say to them, we need you to give money so that we can rebuild Peter, St. Peter's Basilica. We need you to give money so that we can go on crusades to reclaim the Holy Land. We need you to give your money mostly to poor peasants. And the famous sort of line to sell it is that if you give money to the church, then you will get a papal indulgence in return. A papal indulgence meant that you could literally buy your dead loved ones out of purgatory. Now that is a very effective fundraising strategy as long as you believe in purgatory. Most of you don't, so we're not going there, right, this month. But back in the day, this was a really effective way to raise money. You had a loved one who passed away, and you were worried that they were suffering in purgatory. And so Johannes Tetzel would go out, and he would say, if you give enough money, we will give you an indulgence, and your loved one will be released from purgatory to enjoy paradise forever. Martin Luther accused Tetzel of using the phrase, every time a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. Now, don't ask me how that phrase in German still rhymes when you translate it to English, but apparently it does. <laughs> and so a great deal of what we have sort of protested against as Protestants is this notion that existential fear about our ultimate eternal fate was used against us to raise money and to abuse people. Part of being a Protestant is to resist that. that. And I, maybe it will surprise you to hear me say this, many of you, it won't surprise you, I have no problem with the Catholic Church. I'm not Catholic for lots of reasons. None of those reasons are because I don't think Catholics are Christians. I know Catholics are Christians. Every corner of the church has abused people's fears in order to control them and raise money. Protestants are no different. Now, all of that to say that our notions of heaven and salvation have been deeply shaped by those conflicts. They've been deeply shaped by our tendency to essentially try to coerce and control people in that way. And that's probably not a good idea. So let's take a look at what, let's take a look at what John says about salvation. So I'm going to skip back here a little bit to verses 5 through 7, when John the Baptist talks about salvation, he doesn't talk about heaven, he doesn't talk about purgatory, he doesn't talk about what happens to you when you die. Instead, he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, and I just want to revisit those words 
And I want to ask you to consider what it is that Isaiah is describing here in Isaiah chapter 40. Every valley shall be filled. For some of you in your Bible, that says every valley shall be raised up. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So when John the Baptist talks about salvation, he reaches back, he grabs the poetic words of Isaiah the prophet, and he says, you want to know what salvation is like? Salvation is like when the valleys have been raised up and the mountains have been made low. When all the crooked places have been made straight, that is salvation. And then he turns and utters one of my favorite phrases. Sorry, I skipped ahead a little too quickly. He turns and utters one of, his, one of my favorite phrases. You brood of vipers. Sometimes I joke that this is not like the best church growth strategy. Right? John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. He's preaching, and all of these uh, Jewish folks and Roman folks come out to see the spectacle of who John the Baptist is. And as the Jews come out to him, John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? So John, of course, says, God's wrath is coming upon you. And then he really gets to the heart of what's going on. He says to them, bear fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, if you have really repented, then show the fruit of that repentance. And he goes on to say this. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, so here's what you have to appreciate about this. To be Jewish then and now means that you are part of the line of Abraham. You are by blood entered into the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. To be Jewish is to count on that. You are heirs to the promise. That is solid, and it's solid because God's promises are solid. But to these folks who came out to see John, John says to them, do not say to yourselves, but we're the children of Abraham. God owes us. John says, don't say that, because I'll tell you the truth, God's axe is ready to cut you down because you're not bearing fruit. You're not producing the good thing that God expects of you. Now, that would be a pretty harsh thing to hear. And really, for the Jewish tradition, it would be a sacrilegious thing to hear. The idea that God might somehow cut off his promise to you. Now, John says to them, anticipating their objection, he says to them, no, no, no. God is good for his promises, but he doesn't need you to fulfill his promises. If he wanted to, he could raise up these stones to be Abraham's heirs. 
Now, that's a pretty harsh word. And to me, the way I hear that, that is an indictment against privilege. It's an indictment against their privilege. And I think that's what we tend to do. We tend to conceptualize salvation in such a way that we are sure that God would never take it away from us, whatever that salvation means, that we are sure that we are secure that our dad owns the business. I'll never get fired. That's deep privilege. There's this great book that just came out recently. I don't remember the name of the author, but it's called The Power Paradox. I would encourage any of you to get it and read it. The author is not a Christian. It is not a Christian book, but it is a thoroughly Christian message. It is essentially the results of sociological studies that were done on the playground where they studied the behavior of children on the playground and they found two things to be true. The first thing that they found is that one of the best ways to gain social status, one of the best ways to gain social power is to be kind. That if you are generous and good and altruistic, you tend to gain friends. I mean, that seems obvious, right? Like it tends to elevate your social status when you're a decent human being to other people and you're generous with them. But the paradox is this. The second thing they found is that the more social power the more social status that children gained on the playground and in the classroom, the less able they were to empathize with their classmates. And so being kind, being generous, being good, decent people to others, being empathetic, being there for other people who are hurting is actually what gains you genuine good power. But as soon as you have it, that power fundamentally, essentially, begins to erode your ability to empathize. So in other words, that old Lord Acton quote is true, right? That power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We now know that's true. If you have power, if you have privilege, not only do you not know it, but it destroys your ability to empathize with other people. It's sort of like, you know, have you ever been in a workplace where like one of your coworkers like took a smoke break like four times a day, right? Like you worked with somebody who smoked. And what's the first thing you noticed about them when they came back in from their smoke break? Man, they reek. But they don't know it because they're the ones doing the smoking. You ever noticed that? Privilege works the same way. When you're too busy smoking your own privilege, you don't notice the stench. But other people do. I promise. They may not want to tell you that you smell like privilege. They may not want to tell you that you smell like abusive power, but you do. And I think that's exactly what John the Baptist is saying to the Jews who come out, the religious elites who come out to him, they come out and he says, hey, listen, I can smell your privilege. Don't think that God can't find somebody else to fulfill his promises for. Now, the only appropriate response to that, I think, if you believe John, is, 
Well, John, what do we do then? And that actually is exactly what the crowds say when they come out to him. And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? And this is my favorite part. It's my favorite part because John essentially is going to tell them what salvation actually looks like. Not abstract, esoteric, metaphysical salvation, not what happens to your soul after you die. He's going to tell them what actual on the ground, living, breathing, roll up your sleeve salvation looks like. He says this, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anybody who does not have one. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, hey, I have an idea. Collect no more taxes than you're supposed to. The soldiers also asked, and what about us? What should we do? And he said to them, don't extort money from people. Not by threats or false accusations, but be satisfied with your wages. Okay, so are you ready for this? This is being recorded, so I can never deny that I said this. Salvation is not about what happens to you after you die. Salvation is not something that the Jews were potentially under threat of losing. John wasn't telling them, hey, if you're not careful, you're going to lose your salvation. Hey, if you're not careful, when you die, you might not go to heaven. First century Jews weren't concerned with that question at all. John's not saying, if you're not careful, you might lose your salvation. John's saying, you've already lost your salvation. Because when we are not a part of a community of people who give freely to each other in order to meet each other's needs, we've lost our salvation because that is salvation. Salvation for the people of God is being a part of a community that looks like God. It means that if we believe in and worship and identify with a God who is good and kind and generous and just, then we should be a community that is also good and kind and generous and just. And that means if you don't have enough and I have more than I need, then I give it to you. And here's the best part. That's not just salvation for the person in need. It's also salvation for the person who has more than enough. Because while the poor are suffering for lack of food and lack of clothing and lack of relationships, what the rich don't realize is that they're suffering too. Because the only thing worse than being really poor is being really rich. Right back to that story about man in the desert last week, Exodus 16, having too much and holding on to it, and hoarding it, and clinging to it, tends to make you rot. Just like the manna that you try to keep an extra day. And so that's what salvation is. It's all that other stuff too. Don't get me wrong. I think that if God is good, and kind, and generous, and just, then after we die, that there is some kind of eternity with a loving God who is always lovingly there. I am hoping for that. I am praying for that. I am believing that. But here's what I absolutely know for sure. I know that it starts with this, here and now, 
you and I taking care of each other. We're not up here asking for money so that I can drive a fancy car. If you want to know what I make, I'm happy to tell you. It's not that much, and that's okay. We have a church here so that we can create a community of kindness and justness and generosity to begin to provide for people who are being left out in the cold. And if that's what we're doing, then that's what it means to be a church. And I give to that, and so do you. And that's why we give to it, so that we can be there for each other. Salvation might end with eternal life, but it begins there. Salvation includes things like forgiveness and reconciliation with God and each other and deliverance from all the self-destructive behaviors that you have. But according to the Lord's Prayer, it begins with, give us this day our daily bread. And so salvation means sharing your bread. It means sharing your extra coats or shirts or not extorting people for money or not using your privilege to get one up on the next guy. That's what it means to be a church. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to worship you. We pray that you would help us to be the kind of people that you have called us to be. That as we show up here week after week, that as we gather around your words, as we lift up our voices in worship, as we allow you to break our hearts and make us new again, we ask that you would produce fruit in us, that we would become people who are known for our love for each other as well as for you, that we would be known for being people who care deeply for others, rich and poor that we would be known for being a community of radical hospitality that welcomes any and all people. We ask God that you would help us to look more like you and that we'd be able to walk out this practical, even messy gospel as we encounter people in need. Yes, that you'd make us generous in response to those needs. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all stand with me and let's worship together one last time today?